Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church in Mullica Hill, New Jersey. We trust today's message will challenge you and move you closer to Christ. Here's pastor, teacher, and author, Phil Moser. So we're going to continue our series in the book of Acts today. Um, Our teaching pastor, Phil, is on the other side of the planet in Ukraine. And uh, thank you for praying for him. Uh, As you saw in the news this week, there were missile attacks in Ukraine this week. Thankfully, several hours away from uh, where Pastor Phil and the team is. But Pastor Phil setting the pace there, going to another part of the planet and sharing the good news. So continue to pray for Pastor Phil, and um, he'll be back with us soon. So we're going to continue our series in the book of Acts. If you could take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 7. Take your paper Bible or your electronic Bible. Let's look at it together. Acts 7. Important for you to see it. You know, prior to the Reformation, you just showed up and heard some person read the Bible in a language you didn't know. Now we have the blessing of having our own copies of God's word. So we should take advantage of that. And I want you to see it for yourself in the scripture, Acts chapter 7, and we'll start in verse 54. Could we stand, please, as we read God's word together? Acts 7. And we'll actually start in verse 51, Acts seven fifty-one, where Stephen says this to the leaders of the nation of Israel, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised and hardened ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. When they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. He, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Powerful passage in God's word, important passage in the book of Acts, important passage as you think about where we are as a church and how we got to where we are today as a church, because in a lot of ways, the promises 
that were made to the nation of Israel, the covenants that were made to the nation of Israel for 2,000 years of Jewish history extended right into what we now know to be the New Testament, where those promises were preached by John the Baptist, they were preached by Jesus, and they were largely rejected. And when they crucified the Son of God and he rose again from the grave, And he appeared to over 500 people and he appeared over a period of 40 days. He went to a mountain with some of his disciples around him and he gave them very important marching orders to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But he was very emphatic when he said that you're not going to have to do this alone because the theme verse for the book of Acts is going to pop up on the screen here. Jesus said this to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This not only is the theme verse for the book of Acts, this is an outline for the book of Acts. This is the whole book of Acts in one verse. It starts out in Jerusalem. It broadens in scope. It goes to Samaria in chapter 8, and then to the ends of the earth, chapter 10 and beyond. This is the book of Acts right there. Um, So just a quick reminder of kind of where things are at right now in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, you have Pentecost happening In Acts 2, kind of this bookend over here. And in Acts 2, Peter presents a message that is really specifically pointed towards the Jews and the nation of Israel. Calling on them to repent. And many people do come to Christ, but not the entirety of the nation. And as Acts 2 moves along, we come to um, Acts 10, which we'll see in just a few weeks. Acts 10... Uh, many commentators would say another Pentecost happens. The first one in Acts 2 was really Jewish in nature. The second one in Acts 10 is much more Gentile in nature. Uh, where from Acts 2 to Acts 9, the focus is really on calling on the nation of Israel to repent. And we see the result of that as you go through those early chapters of the book of Acts in Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, Acts 5. What's happening with the nation of Israel? Are they embracing the message of the Messiah? And it comes to a really important spot here in Acts 7. So in Acts 2, you have the Jewish Pentecost. Thousands are coming to Christ. In Acts 2 through 5, the Jewish leaders are largely rejecting this new movement And the church's new foundation. In Acts 6, we talked about this a few weeks ago. In Acts 6, the church is growing. There's problems that come up. New leadership is needed to address these problems. And really in Acts 6, I think even though in Acts 6 you've got a great passage there on how the early church was handling problems. I think Luke used Acts 6 in a very important way. To introduce two people. Stephen and Philip. Somehow in God's sovereignty, these two guys that were serving were instrumental in what was happening in Acts 7 and in Acts 8. 
which Acts 8 connects us right into the life of, of Saul Paul. It's a, it's a message of continuity that is so important where Luke is trying to explain, listen, it was preached to Israel, Israel rejected, and God transitioned the program. We continue to see that in Acts 7 in the passage we looked at last week. And today we see Stephen, the first Christian martyr, where they accuse Stephen of seeking to end Judaism as they knew it. Stephen preaches a message of indictment against the leaders of Israel, and he's killed and becomes the first Christian martyr. In Acts 8, there is great persecution as a result of Stephen's death. And as a result of Stephen's death, which is what we'll see next week, the believers in Jerusalem spread out because of this great persecution because of Stephen's death. And so it spreads out, and the other emerging leader, Philip, comes on the scene and preaches the gospel to the Samaritans. In Acts 9, Saul is saved, who becomes Paul. In Acts 10, Peter preaches the gospel to the Gentiles. This is one, just from Luke's perspective as he's writing the book of Acts, you've got to see the continuity of these chapters. You've got to see kind of the thread that Luke is painting as he lays out the case for this was preached to a certain people group whom the covenants hung on and they largely rejected it. Okay, so the fact that you, probably this room is filled with almost all Gentiles here, the fact that you are sitting in here worshiping a Jewish Messiah, how we got here right now, is from what we see in Acts 2 through 10. We're not in a Jewish temple right now, performing animal sacrifices. How did we get here? This is what Luke is trying to explain. This is how the Gentile church, as we mostly know it today, came about. So Luke is presenting the history of the church through these events, demonstrating how Israel continued to reject her Messiah and how the primarily Jewish emphasis of God's programmed, like the Old Testament, Transition to a primarily Gentile emphasis here in the church. Here in the church today. Which doesn't mean that Jews aren't a part of the church. It just means it is really mostly Gentile. Why is this? Because Israel is hard-hearted. Israel's hard-hearted as a nation and a people to God. Now, as you read through the scriptures... You see, especially as you go into Romans chapter 9, 10, 11, you see that this changes with the nation of Israel. Or Paul goes so far as to say, the people of Israel will be saved. And most commentators, theologians, believe that happens in large part during the tribulation period. Where in the tribulation period, you have 144,000 Jewish evangelists that are likely going out into all the world sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Probably more people get saved during the tribulation period than at any other point in human history. But the Jewish people, as recorded throughout the Bible, resisted God. They resisted his messengers. No different towards Stephen. Israel was given so many opportunities to repent. John the Baptist came and preached a message of repentance. As a nation, they largely rejected him. Jesus came and preached a message of repentance. As a nation, they largely rejected him. 
Now Peter, the apostles, the disciples of Christ in Acts 2 through 7, giving Israel another opportunity to repent. And as a nation, they are largely saying, no thanks. This repeated rejection is all leading up to a great transition away from Israel towards the Gentiles, which we'll see next week in Acts 8 and then through the rest of the book. Stephen's a pivotal figure in all this. Stephen, one of seven men that were charged with serving in Acts 6, we saw this a couple weeks back, powerfully preaches one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see this at the latter part of of Acts 6. You see that Stephen is just a powerful evangelist for Christ. And he's seeking to tear down the misconceptions about who the Messiah would be and tear down these ideas of legalism and that it all has to hinge on one people group in the temple. He's trying to dismantle all that and put all of the emphasis on one person, Jesus Christ. And rightly so. And so, at the end of chapter 6, into chapter 7, he is accused of blaspheming against Moses, the law, and the temple. Okay, just flip over real quick, because you need to see this in context here. Flip over to Acts 6. Acts 6, which, the end of Acts 6 sets up all of Stephen's speech in Acts 7. Acts 6, 10 says this, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. This is Stephen. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, meaning the temple, and the law. Verse 14, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Verse 15, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Israel brought three accusations against Stephen. You're changing the customs and traditions. You are denying the teachings of Moses. You want to destroy this temple. Accusation number one. Now, right before we get to accusation number one, these things. Now imagine you are a Jewish person living in the old covenants for thousands of years. All you know are the old customs. Now your heart is blind and hard to the fact that God is sending a Messiah who's going to change a lot of these things. But man, your heart is set on doing things one way. And when Jesus showed up, he said, things are going to change. You can't put old wine in new wineskins. Things are going to change. Things are going to look a little different. Israel didn't want that. We don't want things to change. We want things to just stay right as, as they are, to stay right intact. Accusation number one was you are changing the customs. You are changing the customs. And they said that on Acts 6, 14, we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Stephen's abbreviated response, summarizing 
things that he said in Acts 7 is this, God is a God of change. God is a God of change. Now, we just sung about the fact that God doesn't change. Let's talk about it. The Bible speaks about the unchanging character of God. The character of God cannot change. Write down these cross-references, Malachi 3.6, Hebrews 13.8. Malachi 3.6, Hebrews 13.8. God and his character cannot change. He's permanently and always will be the same God. But God is always doing different things in the lives of his people and has worked in different ways throughout generations. How he interacted with Israel 2,000 years ago is different from how he interacts with the church today. How he's going to interact with his people in the coming kingdom in the millennium is going to be different from how he interacts with the church today. So this is what Stephen is seeking to explain to the leaders of Israel. They thought everything as we know it as a nation, temple, high priest, sacrifices, all this, this is going to stay the same permanently and it'll, it'll never change. That the customs that we have, that the patriarchs handed down to us will be this way forever. Stephen indicates through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this Israel is not the case. And he gives some examples. Go to Acts 7. Acts 7. A little bit of review from last week, but important to the whole argument of Acts chapter 7. He gives the example of Abraham. Acts 7.1. And the high priest said, are these things so? Acts 7.1. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it. Not even a foot's length. But promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he has no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and inflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they should come out and worship me in this place. Interesting. God brought Abraham to the promised land. Israel, but the promises extended to Abraham occurred long before he ever set foot in the nation of Israel, in the soil of Israel. When God appeared to Abraham, he wasn't in Israel. When God appeared to Abraham, he's in a non-Jewish land, Mesopotamia. He's nowhere near Israel when God appears to him and says, you're going to be the daddy of all the Jews. He's nowhere near Israel. What do you think of that, leaders of Israel? God appears to him and gives him this incredible promise and he's not on your promised land. He goes after that and lives in Haran, nation of Israel, leaders of Israel, still not the promised land. After his father died, he came to Israel, but he had no inheritance in it, Stephen points out. Then he promised to his offspring. So, The nation of Israel, the leaders of Israel put so much stock and so much pride on the dirt 
on the soil where our fathers were. And Stephen's point is this, Israel, you put so much stock in this land. But the father of this land didn't even live in this land when the land was promised to him. So Israel, the land is good. But your identity as a child of God can't rest in the soil. God was working outside of Israel before there ever was an Israel, nation of Israel. God doesn't change. God moves. God doesn't change. God moves. Right? So the Christian of 20 years ago can't be the same Christian of today. God moves. God is always seeking to move you closer and closer to his son through the Holy Spirit if you'll let him. He always wants to move you, thankfully. And the Fellowship Bible Church of 20 years ago can't be the FBC of today. You have to move. You stick to your principles. You stick to God's word. You don't change what the scriptures tell you to do. But God moves and adjusts. Let me ask you, in what ways have you grown spiritually over the past 12 months? Can you think of any ways? God wants to move you. God wants to grow you. He's eager to do it. And as a church, are we growing in our spiritual depth? Are we growing in our spiritual depth? And how might we measure that? Spiritual growth is a tough thing to measure. You know, one of the ways that we as elders are seeking to see us grow and mature as a church is that we have to be a togethering church, a strengthening church, a going church, and a wise stewarding church. These four move us towards maturity driven by our love for Jesus. All four combined really are some good signs of growth and maturity as a church. Israel could not get past the past. Can you think of someone in the New Testament who said, man, I got a great past of things I've done for God, but I'm done thinking about the past. Can you think of a guy who said that? Paul. Who Paul, the murderer of Christians, Paul, the greatest theologian of our time, said, the guilt of my past, I can't live there. And the glories of my past, I can't live there either. Both drive me towards selfishness in the flesh. I have to press on to the things God has for me in Christ. As a Christian, we can be so guilty of both, can't we? Man, I got stuff in my past I'm guilty of, and man, it shackles me 
man, I'm such a good Christian. I've done so many great things for Jesus. I could just sit back and cruise control the rest of my life. Both are wrong, are they not? Paul said, man, I got to move forward. I got to move forward. Hey, Stephen, you're changing the customs. God's got to change. Hey, Stephen, you're denying the teachings of Moses. Abbreviated response. You have rejected Christ. And thus, you have rejected God and his prophets. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Stephen charges the nation of Israel with the example of two men, Joseph and Moses. Let's look at it. Man, this is a great text here. I love this. Acts 7, verse 9. Let's talk about Joseph first. Okay, now... (laughs) Sometimes you can think as a Christian, you know, Stephen's about to die for the Lord. And interesting, in his final moments, he decides to give a history lesson. Uh, Steve is not really given a history lesson here. He is bringing the charges against the nation of Israel. It's a powerful lesson. It's a powerful moment here for the Jews, for the nation of Israel, where he says... Hey, you want to talk about rejection? Leaders of Israel, you want to talk about rejection? Great, let's talk about rejection. Verse 9. The patriarchs, the patriarchs, just stop right there. Hey, leaders of the nation of Israel, the patriarchs, your guys, jealous of Joseph. Sold him into Egypt. God was with him. Rescued him out of all of his afflictions. Gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. There came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction. And our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visits. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. All right, we'll just pause right there just for a second. Interesting. Don't forget the context here. Israel, you think you're so holy. You think you're so good. You think you've got it all together. You think through the thousands of years of your history that you did everything so right. Really? What about Joseph? Joseph communicated with his Jewish brothers a vision for what their future would look like. Joseph was condemned for this vision. Remember the story of Joseph and the dreams that he told to his brothers? Joseph was condemned for this vision and he was sold into slavery by the patriarchs. He was rejected for communicating God's truth. What happened to Joseph? He went into relative silence, obscurity. But then in God's timing, was called out of obscurity and became the ruler over his brothers, Joseph. Seeing some parallels here with anyone else? 
Stephen keeps going. Let's talk about Moses. Chapter 7, verse 23. 723. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers. Okay, this is Moses. To visit his brothers. Who's his brothers? Stephen tells us, the children of Israel. Seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, your brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Did you not want to kill me? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled, became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons, close parallels to Joseph. Moses interceded for his Jewish brothers. Moses condemned for this intercession, had to flee into the wilderness. Moses rejected by his Jewish brothers. Moses had to go into silence and obscurity for 40 years. Moses was called out of that obscurity and became the ruler over his Jewish brothers. Both Moses and Joseph were treated the same way by their Jewish brothers. They tried to aid their Jewish brothers. In return, they got rejection. After a period of time, they were positioned over their brothers as God's representatives. This is the life of Christ. Jesus was proclaiming God's truth to his Jewish brothers, trying to help show them the word of God. In return, what happened? from his Jewish brothers, rejected. After a period of time, he will be positioned as God's representative over the whole earth, reigning as king. Just as it was for Joseph, just as it was for Moses, it'll be for Christ. A nation of Israel, in the same way you rejected Joseph, in the same way you rejected Moses, you rejected God's ultimate source of truth, his son. Israel, don't be shocked by this. This is par for the course for you. This is what you always do. Israel, in the same way you rejected Moses, Joseph, and all the prophets, you've rejected God's son, Jesus Christ. Your history of failure to embrace God's prophets carried over to the rejection of the greatest prophet to ever live. Christ. Ironic that they are accusing Stephen of rejecting God's prophets when just a short time earlier. So, the Jews of Stephen's day, let's talk about some application here. The Jews of Stephen's day could not get past the personalities of their past. Heroes, good guys, and it prevented many of them from embracing the final full manifestation of God who is Jesus. Stephen straight up told them in Acts 7.52, 
you betrayed and murdered Jesus. They wanted their Jewish personalities bad. They missed the son of God when he came. You know, we can be guilty of similar things, or at least I can be. I can be guilty of choosing personalities. It can be easy to allow personalities to become your God. We can cling to personalities. This Bible teacher, this commentary, this church, more than we cling to Jesus. You're a Christ follower in here this morning, mature as a believer. I am discovering this more and more. As people disappoint, there is one actual living person alive today in our universe who has never disappointed me. Ever. Jesus knows you. He intercedes for you on your behalf in heaven today. Jesus is the only one who can be with you everywhere and never denies Jesus who promises to equip you to do everything he's called you to do. It's Jesus who promises to use his word to guide you into truth and to make you more like him. It's Jesus who brings freedom to your greatest addiction and light to the darkest corner of your life. And Jesus who is a child of God and one person, Christ. Man, I'm guilty of that. I really want to grow in that area of my life. I mean, no doubt God has put some awesome people in my life. My co-pastors and co-elders being one of them. But these people can never and should never take the place of Jesus. Church, listen. We might say that. But man, that's a lot harder to live. Don't lean so much on others at the peril of your relationship with Jesus, who is alive today, living in a body, a glorified body, somewhere in this universe, having communion with you. Powerful. Powerful. Which, boy, does that sound crazy to an unsaved world, right? Like, bizarre. The truth. The truth. Embrace that. Embrace it. Hey, Stephen, you're changing the customs. God's got to change. God doesn't change, but God changes how he deals with people. Hey, Stephen, you're denying the teachings of Moses. Oh, yeah? You've rejected Christ. You've rejected God and his prophets. Hey, Stephen, you're looking to destroy the temple. You're looking to destroy the temple. Stephen's response, God is bigger than your temple. Look at 744, chapter 7, verse 44. 744. See the first thing, Stephen, the first thing Stephen says? When we're talking, hey, Israel, you want to talk about how great your temple is? How awesome the temple is? 744. Our fathers had a tent. They had a tent in the wilderness. They had a tent of witness in the wilderness. 
Just as he spoke to Moses, directing them to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, our fathers in turn brought in with it Joshua and they disposed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. But the Most High can't dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, heaven's my home. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Where are you going to put me? The Lord would say, Jewish people had made their temple an idol. It was just almost like their Mecca. It was like, this is where God lives. Stephen's like, impossible. God can't live in a temple. What are you talking about? And Stephen saw from a different point of view, probably because he was a Hellenist. Just study it. Probably because he was a Hellenist. Interesting stuff there. Just read up on it on your own time. Either way, Stephen pointed out that the tent of the wilderness was a powerful example of the presence of God and the nation of Israel. Long before there was ever a temple, God was doing things in a tent. Israel. Stephen indicates that David was denied the opportunity to build a temple. God did allow it to be be fulfilled through Solomon. However, God's home is not a temple and cannot be contained. Stephen may subtly be saying, see it on the screen here, the tent worked great. The tent was awesome. God doesn't need structures to be God. It's like the Jews put so much hope in the temple. It's like in Matthew 24, at the start of the Olivet Discourse, when the disciples and Jesus are walking around the temple and the disciples are saying to Jesus, hey, Jesus, check out this temple. Isn't this temple awesome? I mean, look at this place. This is incredible. And Jesus says, i tell you the truth. This whole temple's coming down. Not one stone will be left upon the other. Fulfilled in 70 AD. We too can put too much stock in human initiatives, though, can't we? We can pride ourselves on the size of X ministry, how many people attended X events. Let me ask you, what element of Christianity are you putting a little too much hope in? Let me ask you, what part of your Christian existence do you just have a little too much pride in? You do. I do. Stephen stood for God. For not believing that God is a God of change, that good people are no substitute for Jesus, and that religious establishments can create pride. Israel. And Israel... As God's spokesman, you are guilty on all three counts. Guilty as charged by God. Israel couldn't take it. They resisted the message. Why? Luke tells us. Look at your Bibles. Verse 51. They were stiff-necked which means hard to lead and stubborn. 
They were uncircumcised in heart and ears. Uncircumcised in heart and ears. No different from the Gentiles spiritually. They were children of persecutors and murderers. They were just like their fathers who killed the prophets because they had killed the Christ. And the result of this hard-heartedness was Stephen lost his life for the testimony of Christ. Check out what Warren Wearsby says about this. This is really interesting. I, I wanted to put this whole quote on the screen so you could see it. Check this out. For Israel, Stephen's death meant condemnation. Third murder. They had permitted John the Baptist to be killed. They had asked for Jesus to be killed. And now they were killing Stephen themselves. When they allowed Herod to kill John, the Jews sinned against God the Father who had sent John. When they asked Pilate to crucify Jesus, they sinned against God the Son. When they stoned Stephen, Israel sinned against the Holy Spirit who was working in and through the apostles. Guilty is charged. Guilty. And one dude who stood against Stephen and God was standing right there collecting their coats as they threw the stones. Saul. Which is a great story of transformation. Coming up. Coming up. Wish we could just do it right now. But we can't. Hey guys, listen. As we wrap up here, Stephen's life was not in vain. Here we are. 2,000 years later reading about this man who stood for Christ in a culture that would not. Paid for it dearly. Without a doubt, his testimony had to have an impact on Saul. These two guys, Stephen and Philip, Acts 7 and 8, God was using powerfully And maybe this week, students, parents, grandparents, maybe this week, God is going to ask you to stick your neck out on the line, defend why you believe Jesus is the Messiah. Would you do it? Let's pray to that end right now. Right before we pray, let's just pause and let's think about what was just said. Let's pause. Maybe with your heads bowed, your eyes closed. Minimize this distraction. In what ways have you allowed personalities to take the place of Jesus in your life? Who in your life right now is more important to you than Jesus? Jesus does not want to compete with anyone else in your life. 
what elements of your Christian past, whether the shackles or the glories, are interfering with your sufficiency in Christ. Would you confess that to the Lord now? Given the opportunity this week, will you stand like Stephen did? Even at great cost to you? Lord, in all these things, we recognize in the flesh, they're really difficult to do. Lord, thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit to empower us to do everything, Lord, you've called us to do. Every person we have to share Christ with, every attitude you want changed, every new direction you want us to go, you've given us power to do it and strength to do it. We thank you, Lord, for that. And now, Lord, help us to follow the example of Stephen and be willing to do whatever you call us to do, Lord, for your glory. We trust you've been encouraged by today's lesson. For resources to help you move forward in Christ, we invite you to check out our website, aboutfbc.org, or our Facebook page, Fellowship Bible, Mullica Hill.